The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 9. We'll be reading through verse 21 this morning. Verse 21 is also the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord. There, Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I... Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. We'll be reading through verse 22 this morning. The word of our God. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here in the Gospel according to Matthew, as this will be the primary portion of God's Word for our morning sermon. What are you going to do with your life? Turns out that that's a complicated and sometimes rather stressful question to ask, and it's not a question that we just get to ask only once. Uh, Apparently, the typical American has 12 jobs in their lifetime. Uh, That's a lot of job changing. And and it turns out as well that there are many people that are solidly into middle age who are not quite content with their lot in life, who are still thinking about changing their vocation in terms of what they do for a living. Uh, For example, I have a good friend of mine, went to college with him, he's one of my roommates, who just graduated from law school this year. He had spent the first 20 years or so of his career being a nuclear engineer, and now at 60, he's starting an entirely new career as an attorney. At a time where, you know, four or five decades ago, people at 60 would have been simply looking forward toward retirement, and he's starting over. Perhaps some of you do that as well. You're thinking about that anyway. Maybe there's something that's a little bit different, a little bit better for you. And this is part of the shifting nature of work in the 21st century. So perhaps you're thinking about making a change right now. Or perhaps you're a young person who, frankly, is a little bit worn out by all all us old folk who keep asking you questions like, are you going to go to college? Uh, Have you thought about what you're going to major in? Uh, What are you going to do when you graduate? What's what's your career track going to be? Now, let me just encourage you, um, young people, to be kind to us old folk. We're only asking these questions because we like you, we care about you, and we want you to have a happy and productive future. But for those of us who are older, perhaps it would be good for us to remember is we look out at young people with a world of possibilities in front of them, but all those possibilities can create a lot of stress as they try to figure out how they're going to carve out their niche in this life. For better or worse, the apparently limitless options and resulting stress of trying to carve out our own path in this world is actually a very modern phenomenon. You know, people in the Middle Ages couldn't even understand it, nor could people in the ancient Near East. You know, if you went up to someone in, say, 1400 in Germany, and there wasn't really a Germany yet, but you get the idea, if you went up to them and said, you know, you're 16, what are you going to do for a living? What, what, what are you going to do with your life? they would have looked at you like you were crazy. You know, my dad was a carpenter. His dad was a carpenter. His grandfather was a carpenter. Guess what? I'm going to be a carpenter too. Now, it's true that sometimes people try to get ahead a little bit in terms of their finances. So someone could want to be uh, moved from being a coal miner to being a foreman in a coal mine. 
perhaps even owning a piece of the coal mine themselves, uh, become an investor in it. it. It seems that Martin Luther's father did that very thing. But in terms of career tracks, it was pretty clearly defined. You went into the family business. That's what Elisha did in our old covenant reading. His family had a big estate. Uh, he was quite wealthy, by the way. They had 12 yoke of oxen uh, and the servants to work them. And his view of life was going to be, I'm going to run this estate. I'm going to help my father, and eventually I'll inherit it, and it'll be mine. That's my line of work. And that's what Peter and Andrew and John and James were thinking as well, that their families were in the fishing business. They were going to be fishermen until the day they died. And then Jesus came along. Jesus came along and said, give that up. Come and follow me. And he totally changed the entire course of their lives. We're going to look at this radical call from Christ under four headings this morning. First, Christ calls us to repent. Second, Christ calls us with divine sovereignty. Third, Christ equips everyone whom he calls And fourth, Christ calls us to diverse tasks within his one great mission. Let me give those to you again. Christ calls us to repent. Christ calls us with divine sovereignty. Christ equips everyone whom he calls. And Christ calls us to diverse tasks within his one great mission. Uh, We begin naturally enough with Christ's general call. By general call, I mean the call he's giving to everybody. He's announcing this to all the crowds. His general call is simply this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's what we read in verse 17. From that time, keep that in mind, what time? From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's exactly, identically, the very same way that John the Baptist's own preaching was uh, given to us. Nevertheless, as Jeffrey Gibbs points out, John proclaimed such a message as the one who had come to prepare the Lord's way, playing his own unique part in God's plan to fulfill all of God's saving deeds. Jesus proclaims the same message as the Lord himself, who has come to free the people from their exile and sin, and to bring God's end-time salvation already now into the present. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I remind you that repent does not mean feel bad about your sin and go off and clean yourself up so you can become acceptable to God. Repent basically means be turned to me, as Erasmus so beautifully translated it. It means you're going the wrong way. Uh, You're going after your own selfish desires, and God is saying, be turned back to me. Embrace a faithful Savior in Jesus Christ and walk in my ways. Stop going your way. Start going mine. Our Lord's command that people repent, therefore, means, among other things, that the people of Israel were going the wrong way. They weren't doing what God had called them to do, to be the light to the nations. They were not walking humbly with their God. And they needed to be turned around. 
But please keep this in mind. That doesn't mean they were all lost. This call of Jesus to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand is a call both for the lost and also for the saved. See, the problem is, is even after you're a Christian, you keep wandering off a bit in your own way. And therefore, you have to keep being turned back to God. And that's why Martin Luther, in the very first of the 95 Theses, said that when our Lord and Savior commanded that we repent, he meant that the entirety of the Christian life should be one of repentance. That, that means we're always wandering off. We're distracted easily. And God in his grace, because remember, repentance is a work of God's free grace, he keeps turning us back to him so we will walk more closely with him day by day and year by year. And hopefully the closest you will ever be with the Lord is the day that you're going to die. That is progressive sanctification in our lives. It is relational. Now this is the sort of prophetic behavior that many faithful Jews would have deeply admired. Right? Jesus was being bold. By the way, we should keep in mind that he was being bold from that time. What was that time? It was the time when John the Baptist had been thrown in the prison for preaching the very same message. See, John the Baptist was proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and it turns out that the Herods of this world don't like being told they're going the wrong way. They don't like being told they have to turn and become right with God. So John was thrown into prison for preaching this message, and eventually he'd be put to death. Tells us something interesting about Jesus I think we often overlook. Jesus was a man of remarkable moral courage, because the very message that John was going to lose his life over, Jesus comes and proclaims the very same thing. He doesn't try to find a smoother message that the religious leaders and the political leaders of this day are all going to swallow and go, well, you're not like John the Baptist, we like you a lot better. He comes and proclaims the very same message because it's the truth of God. Turns out that 15 centuries before Martin Luther, our Lord was living out the lyrics of Luther's most famous hymn, The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You understand how faithful Jews could find that sort of prophetic message really very attractive until he turned to them and said, you, you follow me. You know, it's very nice to see this sort of courage in someone else. But Jesus was calling people to a very dangerous task. That's what Jesus does with Peter and Andrew. Uh, look at verses 18 and 20 with me. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two of his brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. The most prominent feature of these verses is simply this. It is the overwhelming authority of the call of Jesus. I mean, imagine someone coming to you and saying, hey, I know you're a really highly trained physicist. You've devoted your life to physics. But I want you to leave that all behind. You're going to come with me and sell composite decking. Right? Leave it behind. Come and follow me. Now, if you're one of those people 
If it's actually thinking maybe in the middle of your career that you want to do something else with your life, you're still not going to follow that guy, right? That's crazy. That's what Jesus does in a culture where people didn't change their jobs. He came to people that were business people. They were not starving. They had a business. It was an ongoing, profitable concern. They had workers that helped them out. They were doing just fine. And Jesus says, you're done with that. No more fishing for fish. From now on, I want you to follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Do you grasp how radical that is? It shows the sovereign nature of Christ's call. Uh, Actually, you know, I I do want to make clear that Jesus isn't simply offering them a new alternative. That's important for us to see. Some commentators and some preachers talk about this as Jesus' invitation. This is not an offer, this is a command. Jesus speaks with the authority of Almighty God, and he says, you, follow me. He doesn't say, you know what, if you follow me, this is going to turn out to be really good for you. He simply, on his own authority, says, you're done doing that, now you will do this, and I'm not even going to tell you what it looks like in advance. It is not merely an offer, it's a command. Peter and Andrew cannot politely turn down this call as, something that they don't want to do. Anything other than leaving their family business to follow Jesus would be an act of disobedience against Almighty God. Now, here's a direct application for all of us. That was costly. Leaving what you're doing to follow Jesus involves commitment, and it involves a willingness to pay the price. It did then. It still does today. Once again, Jeffrey Gibbs is quite helpful in showing us how radically different Jesus was from every other first century rabbi. He writes this, Jesus calls, and only then can and do people respond. Many have understood this point by contrasting Jesus' call with what was apparently the normal procedure for a first century rabbi who gained disciples when they sought him out. That's the normal practice in the first century. Rabbis gained disciples because they were attractive as teachers, and the disciples sought them out. Jesus stands this pattern on its head. He is operating with the freedom of God who calls human beings to trust and to serve him. I I like that expression, by the way, the freedom of God. That's what Jesus is operating with. He is God in the flesh, and he speaks and demands our obedience. Now, as radical as this call is, it's not entirely unprecedented. You know, in our Old Covenant reading this morning, this is precisely what we see happens to Elisha. Think about Elisha. I mentioned he was wealthy. Uh, They had 12 yoke of oxen and the servants to work them. This was a pretty good-sized estate. Uh, Humanly speaking, his life was rather comfortable, particularly when you compare it to Elijah, the prophet. Elijah spends a lot of time out in the wilderness. I mean, whatever you think about getting fed by ravens, it it, it was not what you would think, that's the comfortable life I'm seeking for. And not only that, Elijah was tasked with proclaiming a message that the people did not want to hear. An evil Queen Jezebel was seeking to take his life. Comfortable life of Elisha, Really, really hard life of Elijah. And God says, Elisha, you're going to be the next in line. 
Now, that's the whole point of him throwing the cloak on him, but we're actually told that explicitly earlier on. Elijah is anointing Elisha to be the prophet after him. And what does Elisha do? He takes his oxen, he burns them over the yoke, and feeds his friends and says, I'm done with that life. He's literally, in one sense, it's really symbolic because there's other, other yoke of oxen, he's symbolically cutting off his past and saying, I've been called to this new way of life. I am never going to turn back. But do you understand that Jesus is doing the very same thing? Elisha said, that's God's call on my life. What else can I do? And when the disciples hear Jesus, they say, that is God's call on my life. At the very least, they recognize that Jesus is a prophet of God so that what Jesus is saying, God is saying. And they immediately leave everything and they follow him. Verses 21 and 22. And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Uh, The results are the same, but I think the repetition here is really important doesn't just help us get introduced to some of these disciples. It makes clear that Peter and Andrew are not one-off affairs. Jesus is gathering a group of disciples who will be his special eyewitnesses who will become the apostolic foundation for Christ's church after he's raised from the dead. And yet they were also part of the vast multitude of disciples whom Christ would call from every tribe, tongue, and nation As we'll see in a moment, it's important to make a distinction between what Jesus is doing with them as apostles and what he is doing with them as simply disciples in a way that corresponds to all of us. I think it's critical for us to see that Christ's radical and sovereign call of personal discipleship, that is his command, follow me, is in fact essentially the same for all of us. Every single disciple is called to follow Jesus. The Reformation Heritage Study Bible puts it like this. Discipleship involves submission to Christ's teaching, fellowship with his person, imitation of his ways, and setting aside everything that hinders our allegiance to him. He has a right to each of our lives. He alone deserves to be followed. The life of faith is one of following the Lamb wherever he leads. I mentioned, I like that expression, the freedom of God. See, Jesus is in charge. Jesus knows that he is in charge. So he expects us to respond promptly and sincerely to his sovereign call upon our lives. Beloved, what Jesus declared back then on the Sea of Galilee, he's actually saying to each and every one of you, come and follow me. That is the most basic call that Jesus has upon our lives. Immediately, these men left behind their boats and their families, and they followed him. So why did they do it? We shouldn't imagine that the disciples understood anything at all, like who fully Jesus was, or what he was calling them to. Um, that, That would come much, much later. Even a year or two later, they would routinely misunderstand the nature of Christ's ministry, 
And they certainly didn't understand what this would mean for them personally 5, 10, or 15 years into the future. Those of you who want to plan out the whole rest of your life, um, I got bad news for you. Right? God doesn't tell it to us all in advance. He very well may interrupt your plans. Reminded of the old Jewish joke about how do you make God laugh? You tell him your plans for the future. And I, I will testify that almost my entire life is the punchline of that joke. So why did they leave? Well, they didn't understand yet. As Tom Wright points out, God in his mercy reveals things to us little by little. Peter did not think that one day he would end up with a massive church in Rome dedicated to his memory. Andrew did not suppose that whole countries, that is Scotland, Greece, and Russia, would regard him as their patron saint. They saw neither the glory nor the pain that day when Jesus, still a young man, walked by the sea in their little town of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. They only saw him, and he was enough. Beloved, even though we know so much more about Jesus than the early disciples did, this remains true for us as well. Jesus does not come to you and lay out his plan for your life and say, isn't this the best life you could possibly have? See, Jesus doesn't come and negotiate with us, right? Jesus comes as our sovereign Lord and he says, trust me, take me at my word. You come and follow me. If you know him, that is enough. That's the answer. It's about knowing Jesus. If you know him, that is enough for you to say, yes, Lord, your servant is eager to follow wherever you might lead. And here's some good news for you as you take that step of faith. Christ not only calls us to repent, he not only calls us with a sovereign call, Christ equips everyone whom he calls. Let me say that again. Christ equips everyone whom he calls. I mean, please note the obvious here. Jesus does not say to these fishermen, stop fishing for fish, go off and fish for men. He says, come to me. I'm going to train you. You follow me. And what did the disciples experience? Well, they saw Jesus do miracles and signs that pointed to the fact that he was the Messiah. Yes, that's all true. But they also heard Jesus teach, opening his mouth and uttering mysteries that had been hidden since before the foundation of the world. They listened to Jesus as he talked to people in very different circumstances, sinners of all kinds, and they learned of him. And not surprisingly, as they're going through this apprenticeship of faith, as it were, walking around with Jesus everywhere he's going, Jesus, from time to time, would give them tasks to do. Initially, like any apprentice, they were small tasks. And then eventually, he even sent them out on some short-term mission trips so that they would come back and process with them what they had done, what they had experienced. He was training them for that day when he would be raised and ascend into heaven, and these very men would become the leaders of his church here on earth. Well, you might be thinking... That sounds great for them. I mean, Jesus trained them. What about us? Thankfully, when the King of Kings called you into his mission, he also committed to equipping you 
for this task as well. First of all, he has given you the complete canon of the word of God, and he and the Father together have given you the Holy Spirit so that you could be equipped for every good work. How many of them? Every good work. I mean, isn't that what Paul says in um, 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Beloved, if that wasn't enough, Jesus has given us each other. Uh, Please don't miss how valuable that is to us. Jesus has given us each other so that we would both be equipped by each other and that we would be used in equipping each other for Christ's service. Uh, This is what the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians. Listen closely to these words from Ephesians chapter 4. He who descended, that is Jesus, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And what does he do after he's ascended? And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Who does this equipping? Jesus is doing it right now. Who does he do it for? All of us, the whole church. Jesus is continuing to raise up people in his church who will teach us and help us grow in the knowledge of his perfect and infallible word. And beloved, Jesus is not just doing this so you get a better score on a theology exam. He is doing this, to quote Paul, to equip the saints. That's us. To equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ. See, Jesus calls you to follow him. And when he calls you to follow him, he fully commits to equipping you for the work that he is entrusting to your stewardship. Uh, That's really fantastic news, but it also leaves us with an important question. Who exactly do the apostles, who are not yet apostles, these fishermen, correspond to in the modern church? Uh, That is, is everything Jesus is doing with them apply to every one of us, or does some of it apply to us, and some of it apply uniquely to their call as being apostles. It's important for us to put the question into the context of the rest of Scripture. For a great deal, let me say this again, a great deal of unnecessary guilt and stress has been fostered on the people of God, I grant often well-intended, but a great deal of unnecessary guilt and stress has been placed on Christians by those who miss this basic truth. Christ calls us to diverse tasks. Please let that sink into your thinking. Christ calls us to diverse tasks. Uh, This should have been obvious to us. It's something that's talked about frequently in Scripture. For example, consider these words from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. Paul writes, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. 
If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. See, see, the whole point of this analogy is, don't all try to be the eye. Don't all try to be the mouth. God has given you distinct, unique gifts and unique callings and unique experiences so that you would contribute in a diverse way your own unique contribution to the advance of the kingdom of God. And so that together we would come and be something far more than any of us could possibly be as a lone ranger. God has not given anybody all of the gifts that are necessary for the mission of the church. He has given each of us distinct gifts and distinct callings so that together we would be and accomplish far more than we could do by ourselves. Now Paul goes on to point out that not everyone is an apostle, right? So he's, he's given us the application here. Not everyone's an apostle. Not everyone's an evangelist. Not everyone has the gift of administration and so on. And yet, I may be stepping on some of your toes here this morning, so please come see me after the service, but I intend to step on these toes. This is a real problem in the church. And yet, there are many well-meaning Christians who want to push you into whatever they happen to be focusing on. We rightly celebrate the command that we should not allow the world to push us into its mold. But beloved, I want you to hear this plainly. You should not allow other Christians to press you into their mold either. You are not called to follow them. You are called to follow Jesus. How does this relate to this morning's passage? Here's how. A great deal of stress and guilt has been created by well-meaning Christians who try to make the pattern of what Jesus did when he called the apostles exhaustively normative for all Christians. They then challenge you with how productive you are being as an evangelist in winning souls when the living God has not called you to be an evangelist. Do you understand how that works? I think many of you have experienced that. Right? For the sake of clarity, let me give you what I'm driving at in two short statements. Christ has not called all of us to be fishermen. Christ has called all of us to being in the fishing business. Let me say that again. Christ has not called all of us to be fishermen. Christ has called all of us to be in the fishing business. Let me start with the fact that the Lord has not called us all to be fishermen. That is, not only has the Lord not called any of us to be apostles, right, we get that distinction, the Lord has not called any of us to be apostles, he's going to call very few of us to be ordained evangelists, missionaries, or pastor-teachers. This is not a flaw. This is part of God's perfect plan. That he would call us to all these diverse works 
and then we would come together as the body of Christ and be more than any of us could be on our own. Consider how these truths fit with this morning's passage from Matthew. While the call to repent and follow Jesus is a universal call, it's placed upon all of us, there are a number of fairly obvious distinctives about the calling of future apostles which simply will not apply to us. For example, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are called to physically follow Jesus wherever he goes. See, see, when the Lord's calling you to follow him, he's saying, do what I'm calling you to, right? But they were called to physically follow Jesus around, literally leave their necks. Do you know that even at this time, some of Jesus' most choice disciples, think of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, good friends of Jesus, they don't follow him around. Joseph of Arimathea, a very prominent disciple, who's called a disciple in the Gospels, he's the one who received Jesus' body after his death, he doesn't follow Jesus around. This was a distinct calling for the future apostles because they were supposed to be eyewitnesses of everything that Jesus did and said. So they had to be with him. Their calling to follow Jesus, in one sense, was the same. Everyone's called to follow him. But the distinct way that the Lord was working them out was distinctive in their life. And I also want to encourage you to take the future tense seriously. This is the future tense of what Jesus says to them. Jesus does not say, leave behind your nets, I have made you fishers of men. Jesus says, leave behind your nets and follow me, I will, future tense, make you fishers of men. See, when the disciples step out, they are already his disciples. They actually don't get commissioned to go fishing for human beings until Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is going to train them for that work. So being a disciple and being a fisher of men is not the same thing. I'm belaboring this point. Well, if you've known me long enough, I do belabor points sometimes. But I'm belaboring this point because I don't want well-meaning but wrong-headed people to put a guilt trip on you by pressing you on how many people you led to Christ last year. Now, by all means, we want to be open about the fact that we're following Jesus Christ. It's good for us to tell other people about Jesus and what Jesus means to us. It's good for us to invite people to Bible studies and to church and so on. And in fact, that's a big part of how the gospel advances. Just all of us in our ordinary lives just sharing with people we work with. It's all good. But you ought not to feel guilty for not being a more productive evangelist when you haven't been called to be an evangelist at all. Christ calls us to diverse tasks within his one mission. Nevertheless, while we are not all called to be fishermen, we are all called into the fishing business. See, right now, Almighty God is at work reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ. And he has given us the awesome privilege of participating in this task. Please mark this well. The Lord has not given the privilege of this task to a select few. He has given the privilege of this task of entering into his ministry to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus Christ to each of us and to all of us collectively. Isn't this precisely what Paul tells the Romans? Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So yes, if the gospel is going to be spread in Uganda and in China and in North Andover, someone needs to preach the gospel. It has to happen. But you know, in order for people to be sent, that means other people have to stay and send. Right? They're all part of the same work together. I think I've told you this before, but I love the idea I heard from Hugh Palmer, a very fine British preacher, who would talk about how he anticipates that people in places like Uganda are going to come up to people in his church and thank them because they're sending people to the mission field to share the gospel with people they have never met was part of how those people got led to Christ. Beloved, your gifts, your prayers will do that as well. God is using us, all of us, together. Furthermore, discipling the nations goes far beyond telling the gospel to unbelievers. That's an important work. It is not the only work God has called us to. He doesn't call us simply to announce the gospel to unbelievers. He calls us to disciple the nations. Uh, Disciple the nations means raising your children, if you have them, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's how people get discipled. It means sharing our lives together as brothers and sisters in Christ so we bear each other's burdens as we point each other to a a, a greater sense of the goodness of God and to greater faithfulness in our own lives. And besides that, God really does want some of you to write computer programs, to be lawyers, to be accountants, to be carpenters. It's all part of God's plan in this present age is for his people to do all these diverse things and yet to come together as one family that seeks to glorify his name. Christ calls us to diverse tasks within his one great mission. And he has gifted us in different ways. So that when we come together as a church family, we are far more than we could ever be by ourselves. The Great Commission has not been given to Lone Rangers. The Great Commission has been given to us collectively as the people of God. Okay, then. So what do you want to do with your life? You may have noticed this passage doesn't answer the question, should I be a nurse, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a farmer? All good things. We we need all those things. It doesn't answer that question at all. This passage doesn't answer the question, should you play it safe in your middle age, or start out on a new career because you think that's going to be more fulfilling and your gifts are going to make a bigger impact on the world. This passage doesn't help you with that, not in the slightest. But I want to suggest this passage can help you with something that really weighs down many people in this world, including many Christians. And that is the sense that I need to search for significance. It's a common desire people have. I have a quest in my heart for significance that I don't think I've achieved yet. But beloved, God is telling you you already are significant. You are significant beyond the wildest dreams of this world. For you were created in the image of God. You were redeemed and brought into his family so that right now you are a daughter or a son of the living God. And you will live and reign with him forever. Not only that, God has called us, each and every one of us, into the greatest task, the greatest mission on the entire face of the earth. You want to say, okay, 
Bill Gates, he's one of the guys that founded Microsoft, one of the big drivers of it. That's kind of impressive. You know, it's one of the greatest companies on the face of the earth. It's going to pass away. God has called you into his own mission to reconcile the world in Jesus Christ. And your contribution to that will last forever. And here's all you need to do. You need to respond in faith to the call that Jesus has on your life. And his call was simply this. Come and follow me. Amen.